Hallo, willkommen zum Biennale Podcast. Mein Name ist Alexandra Zavia. Ich unterhalte mich mit Gästen der Biennale 2022. Heute spreche ich mit Cyril Schäublin. Hi Cyril. Hi. We are going to talk about your film Unrest. And um, we are sitting here in the, uh, in the Hotel Intercontinental after the opening party. Yes. <laughs> um, the, um, uh, the film uh, talks about a, a watchmaker factory. And uh, I know that you also uh, are from a watchmaker uh, family background. Mm -hmm. Can you say a little bit more about how that experience to, to, to be surrounded by um, time or by watchmakers uh, kind of like shaped you or shaped your memory and also I would be interested in when for the first time you were confronted with the sentence or the recognition that time is money because for me it's the sentence connected to time actually mm -hmm. mm, so I think One of the first things for this film was um, probably my my grandmother, which I spoke to a lot when I was when I was a kid, and she was working in a watch factory producing this unrest piece, which gives the title to our film Unruhe. And um, I guess um, I talked a lot to her, but also other members in my family, for example, my uncle, and. Um, so when I told him I was going to make this film, I we've met and, and I asked him, um, what is time for you? This kind of naive question. And he looked at me and was like, um, I, I d d we don't know anything about time, really, what it is physically as, as the phenomenon that things keep moving and so on. But um, he said to me, if you ask me about time measurement or the clocks and watches, it's just a series of events that you put together so you can compare it to other events so it's like an, a, a series of events in the case of a watch it's a tick and a tock and he said to me that um, in that sense also the first watches were not mechanical watches but they were like um, agreements through language like to distinct today and tomorrow is already a watch because you, you put two events next to each other and you can compare them to the sun going down and, and up um, so, in the end, that was for me kind of interesting because it's said that um, it's in some way also connected to to history or story, those words which are um, very similar to each other, because they're also kind of a series of events. It's how you organize um, events from the past and, and juxtapose them or put them next to each other. And I think um, that was very helpful in some way because I think every historical film in the end is um, like every other film of course but uh, every historical film is obviously a choice of information of a certain period you cannot um, objectively show um, the year 1877 <laughs> I don't think it's you know this is impossible there is no such thing so it is obviously uh, a choice and I think this kind of choice is very important for us because um I think that's what also the film is about a little bit because um, it's um, in the film, you know, people talk about, you know, what shall we choose from history? Shall we take uh, the Paris Commune and celebrate it or shall we take a medieval battle 
that um, helps to 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 portray um, nationalist um, um, narratives and mythologies. So, yes, um, and I think the question about time is money. Um, for me, like speaking to my family or thinking of the mechanics of watches. Um, it is something uh, was like a big wish for mine for this film to to um, as w as we look at people constructing watches. Um, hopefully, we get the idea that time is not a, a final truth. I mean, the mechanical time, the, the which we really use uh, a lot and which we integrated so much into our lives. No, like we really believe that now it's uh, it's. Uh, 12 o'clock <laughs> actually and um so but it is a construction which is very important not to forget it is a mechanical construction and um as it means it, it can be changed of course yeah as money is you know so these basic ingredients of capitalism are made up and um yeah i spoke a lot <laughs> yeah thank you yeah it's uh, uh it means it can be changed and that gives back a certain kind of responsibility mm. to to every individual no yeah. if they they want to change they can make a change no yes yeah. yes and uh can you explain uh what the unrest element is in watchmaking so the unrest uh, unruhe in swiss german or um balance wheel in english or balancier in french it's um, so my 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 grand aunts and my grandmother would always say it's the heart of the of the watch, and it's the it's the it's the central pendulum of the watch. It's it does like these spastic movements, and um, so what uh, mostly women were performing this work um, in the 19th century, but also 20th century in my family. So you put together three parts and. Um, and then you have a, 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 a spiral that you put on it and you need to cut the spiral exactly on the right spot so it has 18,000 uh, half swings so you compare it to a to a bigger um, um, piece which is like the the mother piece which is uh, built bigger and so you have like this unrest regulator machine called potence um, in french and so you compare the swing of the little unrest with the with the bigger unrest. Unruhe, the social unrest in in a democracy, is is also a very important element, or even more so if it's not a democracy. And uh, also with your previous film, Dino uh, Skutget, there was a it was a kind of critique uh, of capitalism also how come you're and with with unruhe unrest with this film now we have uh, we are looking at the origins of a of a of a anarchic group uh, which uh, formed in in that area where you're from also um, so was that is that something because it's kind of like connected to your upbringing, to your hometown, uh, that you're interested in that anarchical uh, uh, topics? Or is that, where does it come from? Why is there such a, um, I don't know, a readiness or also um, an empathy for, for those movements? 
I think what's interesting about these beginnings of the anarchist movement um, is, or let's say about this word um, in, in general, anarchism, is that it's um, it is it doesn't seem so labeled yet to me. It's a word. When I when I think about language recently, sometimes it strikes me how certain words are so um, maybe you could say one-dimensional, maybe like the word jet lag. <laughs> I think <laughs> I thought recently, it's you immediately think about um, the same thing, and I think the word anarchism is still very um, open for any kind of projection and um, and ideas. It is kind of still transporting some of its maybe original wishes about decentralizing um, um, thinking, not only uh, political structures, but also language and thinking. And um, yeah, so it is, that is f surely one reason why, why I'm drawn to it. And uh, um, also something that really stroke me while doing research was really this information that um, for unmarried women who were working in factories in Switzerland, um, there was no health insurance provided by, by um, either government or factories, and that the first health um, insurance and security for unmarried working women um, was the anarchist cooperative in those watchmaking towns. and. Um, so I think the beginning of 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 this anarchist movement was uh, was it was it's interesting how through history we maybe we got this idea that anarchism stands for um chaos you know but um what's really interesting when you look at those beginnings of the anarchist movement it was um rather uh, creating a new order than destroying an order it was about creating parallel uh, new forms of organization that would then uh, overcome or or start to um, 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 how do you say this word um, yeah start to not compete it's not a word that I like but they were next to those other nationalist governmental ways of organization so it was um, yeah I think this is interesting also about anarchism that it's from from a historical point of view it's kind of a um, um, there is also this thing you can say battle of narratives, but if you use that word battle of narratives, it's sure that um, the anarchist movement lost the battle of narrative because they want they never wanted to be, I think, um, this chaotic um, crazy group, um, uh, which they were labeled by the the, the nationalist governmental uh, orders by that time. Um, yeah, and also what you've said before was interesting. Like, who owns time? Who can or who can tell the other people um, when to uh, go to the factory and stuff? I think what's very interesting about the beginnings of the anarchist movement is that they were very pro time synchronization. They were very pro um, telegraph. They were the most um, tech technical, uh, like like technology obsessed <laughs> people in that valley, much more than the nationalist bourgeois movement which is also interesting because their newspapers were much, for example, were much quicker connected to international networks. So in, th in the research we, we did, I found out with this historian that 
the owners of the watch factories, the most capitalist people in that valley were um, were um, reading the anarchist newspapers. Like they found the names of ordering the like the abonnement uh, um, people. So um, and the and the nationalist newspapers would buy articles from the anarchist newspapers because they much quicker than the nationalist movement. Um, used to telegraph in order to connect with uh, other anarchist groups in the United States, for example, so they've exchanged information and built like this, pr this pre-Reuters kind of system. So, yeah, very organized. Yeah, there's a very mm -hmm. nice telegraphing uh, scene in the film uh, when Piotr Kropotkin uh, is, is telegraphing uh, back to the States about uh, his enthusiasm about this uh, anarchist movement uh, was is that a real telegraph that existed or how did you uh, encounter that figure in the first place actually did you yeah well that that thing that he reads in the in the telegraph station is actually um, taken from his memoirs so he kind of wrote I mean he did write it in into his memoirs but um, we didn't find the telegraph telegram <laughs> maybe maybe he did send it to somebody but um, no that's but um, so I came across Kropotkin, um, I think when you look at early uh, uh, watch industry in Switzerland and, and the anarchist movement in the watchmaking um, areas, um, you quickly come across um, Bakunin and Kropotkin and also all the other people who traveled there. And that brings me to this point that for me it is very helpful to have Kropotkin in the film. Um, but um, also the, the, the Alexei who, who acts as Kropotkin said, <laughs> but he's not really in the film. I mean, I'm here, but I'm not really, you know, really there. So um, this question from an anarchist perspective of the 1870s, I think um, it's maybe questionable that we today centralize our focus um, so much on a few people and names like Kropotkin, Bakunin, um, Proudhon, Emma Goldman and so on um, and not think of the bigger uh, picture or of the marginalized, uh, like historically marginalized groups of people who also did stuff. And for me um, that was very important to, and maybe that goes back also to my grandmother or the, or the, the, the women in my family who worked in watch factories to um, also in a, in, a, in, a, in a sense of this uh, Simone Weil um, books that I really like, especially La Condition Ouvrière, um, where she describes her experiences working in, in a steel factory. Um, because I think in the watchmaking workshops in, 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 in the factories, where when, when people started to really um, try to realize those ideas and concepts and, you know, gathering money for strike um, funds or uh, organizing cooperatives and providing health insurance for unmarried workers. Um, that is that is what matters really, you know? And I think um, so in a sense from Simone Weil who also said um, that maybe not um, uh, religion is the opium for the people but revolution is the opium for the people that revolution has really um, the paradise um, you know, uh, analogies kind of, and what really matters is maybe the, the the small revolutions between you and me, and how we how we organize um, our ourselves from day to day, and yeah, that was important. So 
Kropotkin is in the film, but there is also a, a person called Josephine. And for me, she really, we don't know much about her because sometimes I think, what do we know about each other at all? <laughs> but um, she, I think what we could do is in a sense from Simone Weil trying to not um, reconstruct a, a biography, but reconstruct the work they were performing because when I spoke to the women in my family and we talked about their lives, um, in the end, they really spoke about work, you know? Th that was what they were doing, and that that's what we could show in the film. And that's what you find them in the end. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what you were saying about um, uh, decentralization and marginalization and about Alexei saying he's not really there and so on, reflects in the visual uh, decisions in the film, in the visual uh, language of the film. Um, I'd like you to, to tell us a little more about that, um, about the framing, about the compositions, uh, because they, they, they say so much. Uh, they speak very loudly. The film is very calm. Um, but please, please elaborate on that. Um, and also on the compositions between Josephine and Piotr, because they are they have um, uh, really like a choreography throughout the film, actually. Yeah. Mm, I think mm, the, the, the beginnings of how, how Sylvan, who mm. does cinematography, and me, um, um, there is a lot of, I would say, so we build a discourse maybe, we go to those places together where we will film, we also stayed outside, uh, <laughs> you know, sleeping <laughs> next to a wood fire. And um, so we go there and we look at the, at, at the places, we take pictures, uh, we talk, but it's maybe not, um, it's really, for me, it's not uh, really a, a brainy process, it's more of, um, maybe another intelligence that I feel like in my hands or in my eyes or walking around those places. Um, I think we really try to, uh, maybe it sounds bizarre, but uh, listen um, to those places that will be in the film and, and not try to um, impose ourselves on them. So, it's not e so easy to talk about it, but I think what's what maybe we I can't say is that um, um, this question of choice of information or how to organize knowledge or, or information from the past or, or from the present is for me a very big question, <laughs> um, also for our present right now. And um, I think with those images that we also try to maybe, you could say, decentralize or ask the question what is in the center of this image because um, sometimes um, the, 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 the people who talk are really at, at the marginalized in the frame. Yeah, you have to look for them actually. Yeah, you got to look for them and I think it's um, so you also have to kind of maybe organize your viewing a little bit and um, that's for me something interesting how to yeah, how to look at the world, what to choose from, where do you put your attention to and me personally, maybe it goes a long way back when I was living in China. I really like those um, those um, maybe random marginalized places in cities, but also in language when things start to feel like they just go by themselves and try to 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 go there and not in a in a kind of center important 
centralized moment. Yeah, um, I will. I'd like to come back to language and to um, um, also photography in a bit. But because we were talking about Josephine, uh, she is not an actress. Um, um, she's an amateur actress. How did you find her, and why did you go for that option, not to to uh, work with a, a professional actress? Mm -hmm. I think. That probably goes back to when I was working on my first film, um, which I had no money <laughs> for. <laughs> but not um, only that was the reason. I think I, I moved back to Switzerland um, after living like almost 11 years abroad. And um, for me, um, I had the wish to, to make a film in Zurich or in Switzerland. And it was very obvious for me that um, I wanted to work with people um, who are my friends, who I know, and um, because I like the way they talk, I like to spend times with them. It made completely sense for me, especially when when my friend, uh, a good friend of mine, Fidel, which I shared the, the the studio with, I was we were working next to each other in two rooms. But there was also other people, but I remember when I was uh, uh, listening to him one morning when he was talking to his bank on his phone. And it was so um, funny and tragic at the same time to hear a friend um, t talking for 20 minutes through passwords and codes and giving this information, <laughs> talking about money. And I was, I found that crazy how how 20 minutes of your day go by and you talk about something that is supposedly so non-important. I think what is less important than a, a, a phone call to a call center but it happens. People do it all the time. It's a language that we constantly perform. And um, so for the second film, it was very um, uh, important to maybe look out for a language that is rather speaking through us than we are speaking it. Because I think that's when things are really happening or this kind of capitalist mythology, as I sometimes <laughs> like to call it, is really going through us. And we it's kind of a performance that we that we do all the time. And um, not all the time, but m most of the time. And um, so this, for me, this was also kind of a question. Who can you have in a film uh, to, to find such a language? And I think um, Clara, who is a, a friend of mine, um, we spoke a lot. Um, um, I We exchanged books. Um, we exchanged books by Kropotkin, by Simone Weil, by, by Chekhov. And... <laughs> um, so for me, that is really important to work with people that you can just talk and um, and um, yeah, find a language that is not maybe so scripted or made up for a film, but exists outside of the film and then can like uh, is invited to to go through the film. And so there's a lot of different people in the film. There is Clara; she's an architect. There is um, a, a truck driver and farmer, which I've met when doing finding the pictures and the, the frames. Um, Relu. Um, there is a friend of mine who's a film director living in Paris. There are real watchmakers um, working today or working for unions. Um, there are all kinds of people coming together. I think that's a very, very uh, beautiful take on why you were why you are choosing those people. Very mm. interesting. Um, the way to organize the past or the what we know of the past or what we sh should remember of the past mm. 
is of course not only done by language but also by photographs yeah. uh, pictures and uh, taking pictures is 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 a big or takes up uh, uh, some of the uh, film also there are a lot of scenes where people take photographs um, please say something about that because it kind of like develops a, a humor of its own also aside from the fact that it speaks about uh, organizing the memories but uh, you are also very interested in, in photography as, as, a, as an artist also um, yes so I think that came also up in the in the research process that um that this the importance of um of these portraits uh, carte de visite it was called in French. They are being traded outside the factory yeah. and and the uh, that's that's really true. I mean yeah. they they so f um, after like eighteen sixties late eighteen sixties eighteen seventies um suddenly um you could uh, um. So the price for for such a carte de visite was like the half uh, salary uh, wage of of a working class person in Europe. So you could afford it suddenly, when as before you needed to uh, employ a painter, and of course, <laughs> very few people had the money to to do that. So um, these pictures exploded really. Um, the first copy of the Crown Prince of England in the 1860s was uh, sold 150,000 times within a few weeks. Um, so there was this market of, of um, photographies, of portraits. And um, f looking back at it from now, I think if you have all these pictures from that time from, from people, it's, it's like, um, um, it's, it's uh, in some sense, it's a representation of that time, of course. And then you have like the, the anarchist uh, assassinators or, or people like Bakunin and stuff who are also traded. So also in the sense of how uh, pictures were taken from towns, for example, I wondered who decided, you know, who was on that picture. <laughs> if who you could see what they were wearing. It is, uh, it's like um, claiming an objective reality a little bit. It's like this is how our, uh, this is how our town looks like. This is how our factory looks like. And the question: Who gets to decide? Of course, um, you know, men <laughs> in power. And um, so, this was helpful maybe for for our film because, of course, it also. Questions the film itself, and the, and the question who, who 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 in the first place gets to decide what we see in a film, uh, yeah, who is outside the frame, who is inside the frame, and um, this is um, for me, um, of course, really connected to our present, and um, this questions why are things as they are? Why do we? Why do we follow any kind of order and think, yeah, this is this is now how it is. This is society. This is uh, our town. This is how people do this and that. <laughs> like, who gets to decide all of these things? And um, yeah, the, the the big question mark or the beauty maybe to 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 see it as a construction that is um, that is um, up for transformation. Yeah, um, the um, uh, language, language as a as a construct, language as a tool, um, language as a part of 
you know our identities is has been coming up in this talk a lot as well and um you told me before that you started writing about films uh just for yourselves uh, why did you did you start doing that and does it what does it do for your own work There's a sentence um, that we also spoke about by by Wittgenstein when he says that um, if a if a, a, a wrong thought is um, put down put down to paper um, um, and gets verbalized, there's already a lot to be won or you win already kind of uh, in your situation, and I think this is uh, often on my mind. Um, so I think language as a tool to um, to kind of transform your um, your your I say it again this organization of knowledge or how you organize what you know in in, in your um, in 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 your mind and um, so I think writing about films is um, for me sometimes helpful to to understand better um, mm, um, what they were doing to me and, and so it helps me to so in some way transform, I hope, yeah. Do you think or do you find that um, a, a director, because I mean cinema is a language that, we talked about that as well, that people can speak maybe more easily or more interchangeably mm. than than languages of other art forms. Mm. Um, and do you think as a director there is a kind of responsibility to show um, an attitude, uh, maybe a social attitude in, in the language of a film you're speaking? Or would you disagree? What do you think? What do you mean with social attitude? Like, like um, Haltung. Um, yeah. I don't know mm. the 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 corresponding English word actually yeah, because yeah. it's not. You know, I don't want to to to, to have a. We're not talking. Well, I'm not thinking about a manifesto or anything, but yeah. just an uh, Haltung zur Welt. Einfach. Or is it even possible not to show it? Or <laughs> because uh, I have the feeling sometimes directors make a big effort of disguising it, yeah. not to offend anybody, or I don't know why, but uh, I, I miss it sometimes. And especially when they are talking about topics that are actually um, that actually call for positions uh, or for positioning yourself, they um, try to make sure not to show their own attitude towards the subject. Mm. I believe that um, <coughs> what you've said before, that this question how films are accessible uh, through language, that is often something that I find really, really um, great that um, I think everybody I know can somehow say uh, why they like a film or not. Like even um, some friends of mine that have nothing to do with cinema or you know work somewhere in places that have nothing to do with arts or whatever that means. 
um, or my aunt who works in a call center. I love to talk to films about her. Everybody can um, can somehow articulate with language why why they like or don't like a film. So that is something to say, and I believe that um, um, but within all of this cinema is so um, accessible to people but I think it also obviously always um, mirrors um, um, not only what we call political which is also a word that has many meanings um, and transformative meanings but economically also um, it mirrors how we organize economies. And I think uh, certain things um, that we, of course, for example, that a film is always labeled with the na nation that where the, the territory where the film was produced, um, this is very strong still, and for me it's questionable. But not only this, I think what, you, what you've said before, um, I think there is a certain... Um, in economy, there is a, is is a standardization or something like that, um, and this kind of normative standardizing <laughs> uh, structure uh, is, of course, also to be found in in cinema. And I think that is, if if there should be a position or a posture or a haltung, I think we should not forget that. Um, I was also talking to to someone last night at that party <laughs> about that, who uh, who told me we talked about so what kind of films do we do and he said yeah my films are kind of experimental and I said, um, and we agreed both that all films are experimental. It's cinema is always made up and and even um, uh, the television talk is show <laughs> you know is completely experimental cinema from one point of view. But you, we have these standards that we think that is the centralized way and standardized way of how, w how film works and how we, how we organize it. And we should not forget that it is always constructed. And I think within this, this is, I mean, that's important. I think that films are aware that um, it's always um, um, constructed and I think this, what's really dangerous um, for me with, with, a, with, with cinema is that these standards, how a film should uh, work like, how it, how it should look like. You know, uh, it's important for production companies, uh, especially in Europe, I guess, where you have the state funding to sort of show how you've spent the money that things look properly lit and, you know, you work with a language that is understood and, and, and all the of that stuff and um that is a danger because um yeah i don't think it's helpful for for how fragile and uh, and um and um open and up for transformation people are all over the place yeah and it kind of levels out uh in individual expression it's it's mm. if it all has to look the same or even more expensive. Yeah. One last question. Um, on set, uh, I suppose when you're working, there are no hierarchies? <laughs> <laughs> How does it work on set? Um, I think um, organization is something really, really beautiful. Um, how how you 
organized stuff. So for me, I don't like to think of the word hi uh, hierarchy, but rather organization. We organize each uh, ourselves uh, when working on the film. And I think what's really important is this kind of invitation to everybody who's there to participate and share whatever is on your mind and um, bring your own life and language which you have outside of a film set or, or, or of this kind of film set <laughs> reality um, into into the process and um, share with each other what's what's going on. Mm. Thank you, Cyril. Thank you for the talk. Thank Danke so fürs much. Gespräch. Uh, danke fürs Zuhören. Wir hören uns beim nächsten Biennale Podcast.